for the Agile community. www.agile.fm Welcome to another episode of Agile FM. And today I have a uh, German fellow, and not only a German fellow, uh, um, also a podcast fellow. I have Mark Löffler uh, with me. And Mark is... Uh, Uh, podcaster of the Passionate Team podcast, uh, but he's also the author of the book Improving Agile Retrospectives, and uh, that is also the .com domain name, improvingagileretrospectives.com, all in one word, no spaces and dashes and so forth. forth. Mark, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Mark, you have uh, written this book about Agile retrospectives. Now, definitely want to talk a little bit about uh, that. But before we get started, the Passionate Team podcast. Uh, so you are passionate about passion and podcasting about passionate teams. You do that in yeah. English and in German. Yes, I do. Yes. That shows a lot of passion because that means a lot of maintenance and effort and getting all these things out. Why is that? Who do you want to reach with these podcasts? <laughs> I think from for me, what's important with the Passionate Teams podcast that for me, the core of every successful product development team, and for me, doesn't matter if it's agile or not, is to have some kind of a passionate team. And um, so if you don't have a passionate team, you can apply any method to this team and it won't work. So I truly believe that first of all, you have to find ways how to get passion back into teams and then Agile tools will help them for sure, mm -hmm. but it doesn't help if you have a, a dead team, I would say, which doesn't really work and you just apply um, Agile, Scrum, whatever on this team. It's like putting a new shiny saddle on a dead horse. Mm -hmm. And that's why I truly believe uh, this is really important to talk about this topic. Mm -hmm. Well, you just said like a dead team, right? You also have references on your website about killing passion. So these are very strong words. Um, yes. how, how, can, how can somebody kill passion on a team? How is this even possible? Oh, that's easy, I think. Um, so if you're lucky, you had a team that worked quite well, It's then it's quite easy still to kill this passion. But even worse, in, in some companies, it's, there, there aren't in, even any passionate teams or you have to really search them really, really uh, carefully somewhere. Maybe it's they're hiding somewhere. But yeah, I think it's, it's I just had a team a few weeks ago which worked quite well. And then they decided, okay, let's uh, ramp this team up, put some more people into this team. And um, so what they did, they just said, ah, it's really expensive to get some more um, European or German engineers into the team. Let's get some uh, engineers from India. And I don't have anything against engineers in India. Mm. That's what I want to say. But uh, these guys in India, they have no clue about the project. They don't know what's really happening here. They were just put into the team without any knowledge what they can do here. This just, okay, it looks like an engineer. Let's put him in a team. And um, now the whole team is brought to halt because now everybody has to support this Indian guys now. Mm. And they are now starting to work on topics which are not important at the moment because um, otherwise they wouldn't have anything to do at the moment because everything else is too complicated and they don't really know how to solve this in India because nobody from this project team is in India at the moment. So it's just like some satellites sitting there somewhere mm -hmm. so this is one, one of the things they, they they did to just slow the whole thing down and um, this is just one way how we can do it mm -hmm. well in, in this in this case um, that person from India would be uh, like a, a synonym or like a, any, anybody from any kind of offshore 
development team, right? So yes. That would yes, apply to anybody, okay? Yeah. Well, yeah. we see that in our industry quite a bit, right? Uh, cost reductions and so forth, um, and then have people from other parts of the world contribute, whoever's available at that time. So that is a passion killer in your opinion. Yeah, I, from my point of view, it's a passion killer. Yeah. It's um, in, in Germany, we would say it's a Milchmädchenrechnung, mm. a milkmaid calculation, maybe. I don't know if there's <laughs> a real English translation for that. Simple math, um, right? Yeah, because it's, it's, it's sure, yeah, that's maybe offshore people are cheaper. And um, but what you get additionally is you get lots of additional maintenance, just simple things like doing a daily in the morning. Now you have to set up a video conference or telephone conference for that. It already takes time. And um, then it's difficult, more difficult to get these people into the team. And I think it's really important if you're building a team to really do some kind of team building. And if you have just one or two satellites, I call them satellites in a, in a far location offshore somewhere, it's really difficult then to really get a team spirit in such a team. Mm -hmm. And what I, what I, on the other hand, Uh, it's possible from my point of view say, saying, okay, let's build a team in India with four to five engineers, for example, give them a dedicated topic and really try to build a great Indian team somewhere and then give them some dedicated topic they can work on. And I think that that can work. Mm -hmm. But if you have uh, teams uh, distributed over time zones and far away and then you're trying to build uh, passionate teams, it's really difficult. So passion is really about like um, ownership of work, autonomy, um, where people can really shape something together rather than being handed down tasks from somebody else. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Some people, um, I heard that, doesn't, this is really a, a far-fetched for me personally, but I heard that some <laughs> people don't enjoy coming to work on a daily basis. Um, and uh, in, in, you mentioned that in one of your blog posts um, that, you know, passion really has also something to do. Do you like to come to work? Do you enjoy coming to work? And when you go to these agile conferences around the world, there's so much energy and uh, I would say some form of passion. A, people come mm -hmm. to conferences in the first place. Um, does that topic, is that even relevant for the agile community? Do you see people in the agile world not liking to come to work? And, uh, and B, uh, what do we need to do um, in, if that's the case, how to change that? Yeah. Uh, Yeah, I think I see something like that happening, but especially when these people who are coming energized from a conference back into the company and then they're not able to move anything, to change anything, to adapt anything, and they just get back in their old culture and they only can do tiny changes, then they get frustrated and then they start to don't want to get to work back again. And Especially in Germany, we still have this culture of um, staying with the company even for longer times, maybe a bit different in the US. So people, they're really hesitating of, of leaving a company because of where to find a new job, whatever. And um, so sometimes they just stay even if they're not really happy where they are. And um, that's where some of the pain begins in the end. Mm -hmm. So you're saying like people bring an energy. <clears throat> People bring an energy. Sorry. Yeah, no problem. Some people bring the energy home from uh, from a conference, and they just don't feel like the spirit continues to live in the organization. And yeah, it's, true. it's getting stale, and obviously, and the and the negative side effects out of that. Um, here's something I I noticed um, in in your writing, and that's also an interesting thing. We often hear people recommend uh, teams to stay together uh, over a longer period of time, have a shared learning, and then. Um, you do also throw something out as more like a, a tactic, I guess, um, and that is a dynamic reteaming. 
Um, and that is about changing things up a little bit, if I understand that correctly. Why is that? Yeah, Why is that? And how does that relate to passion? This is interesting. This was a, a podcast episode I did with uh, Heidi Helfand. She's mm -hmm. from California, Santa Barbara. And she wrote a book on uh, dynamic reteaming. And I had the exact same question. Is it really about just changing and shaking a team all of the time? And no, it's not. It's just having, of course, some kind of stable teams. But what she said is from time to time, it's good to uh, bring one or two new people into a team to get just some fresh energy, some new fresh ideas. And then, of course, you leave this team alone again for some, some months or maybe some even a year or something like that before you put maybe somebody else in the team again. Mm -hmm. so it's not about just breaking this team up every few weeks or every sprint, maybe. For sure. It's really about building stable teams, but bringing fresh energies, energy from time to time. And I think that's mm -hmm. what she calls dynamic reteaming. Mm -hmm. And you have seen that in, in action in some of your work. Do you feel like that's an, that's an interesting technique? Some of the listeners might take away is like, in between projects or maybe after a few projects to rejuvenate a, um, a, a passion within a team might be a, might be a good idea. Yeah, I think it's, it might be a good idea. But the reality, what I see a lot is that, that teams are, are changing a lot and people are pulled into teams and uh, so the teams don't really get time to really build and, and come together as a team. And I think this is also some, something where people and companies should invest more time in just investing into teams. And mm -hmm. there's the saying, never touch a running system, but also never touch a running team is, I think, something which, mm -hmm. which is very true. Yeah. You have, um, I, I looked at your profile, I believe it was on LinkedIn, and uh, you have a background as a traditional project manager with Volkswagen. Yes. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. yeah. How is, I mean, that's been a few years um, since you played that role. How does, how is that compared to what you do today? And what is it you learned from that environment uh, that influenced what you're doing today? Obviously, you're now a coach, a trainer, um, author and so forth in a very different um, aspect of the industry. But I'm just curious to hear how, you know, what kind of transition you made and what are the things you learned in that transition? So what what I learned in the, in the first uh, step was that I'm I'm not made for big corporations mm -hmm. because they're they're changing too slow for me. I'm 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 a guy who loves to change and to adapt and try new things. And uh, this environment was clearly not that fast paced in changing and adapting. And um, but what I what I brought with me is then a lot of experience in big corporations. So I I'm I'm coaching and consulting a lot of of these bigger companies. And the good thing is now I, I know how they are working. I know their DNA. I know that, um, um, so for example, I'm not coaching or consulting those companies four to five days a week mm -hmm. because it doesn't make sense because they won't be able to just digest what I give them. And so I'm, I'm going more into these companies to say, okay, I'm here maybe for two days a week, just give you some impulses and then maybe even work with more than one team just to give them, give different teams different impulses. And then you can see over a longer period of time, maybe one or two months, sometimes three years. Now something is shifting, shifting slowly, but shifting. Mm -hmm. But um, I think the, the most important takeaway for me is, yes, you can change such companies, but it takes a hell of time. Mm -hmm. And um, for me, it's really frustrating then to be in such companies for five days a week. It doesn't work for me. And but I can also truly understand or totally understand people working in such companies that they got frustrated sometimes. Mm -hmm. And th these are the ones that you know we just spoke earlier about. They would go to those conferences and then come back and see yeah. a very different environment. Then right. Um, yeah, that's true. 
Yeah, I'm here with uh, Mark Loeffler, and uh, Mark Loeffler is uh, with an umlaut that is M-A-R-C-L-O-E-F-F-L-E-R, and that is his Twitter handle. And uh, we're going to return back to this podcast in just a moment. Agile is all about inspection and adaptation, and so is Agile FM. If you like the show, please visit the show page of Agile FM on iTunes and leave a comment rating for us. You can now also visit Agile FM, the website, and leave a comment about a specific individual episode online. Welcome back to this uh, podcast with Mark, and we just spoke a little bit about passion. We talked about uh, his previous experiences in a large uh, corporation. We did talk a lot about his podcast, which is available on his website, marklöffler.eu. And um, I do want to spend a little bit of time now talking about your book, Improving Agile Retrospectives. I think it is uh, out of the Mike Cohen series. Is that correct? That's correct, yes. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about that book. There are a couple of retrospective books out there. Is that a techniques book? Is that a tools book? What can readers expect out of that book? Um, this book is, I think, of course, there are some techniques in the book. I think what this book focusing on, which maybe some other retrospective books are not doing that much, is really focusing on how to facilitate retrospectives, what are some common pitfalls, how to come over them. Um, using uh, tools from system system thinking and complexity thinking retrospectives. And I think that these are the, the chapters which are completely different from other books from my point of view and that are missing currently in other books. Mm-hmm. And there's also a chapter about metaphors or how to use metaphors in retrospectives. So how can you build your own activities, uh, like doing a soccer retrospective or a kitchen retrospective, something like that, for example. Mm-hmm. So... Um, this time, of course, there's a primer. So the first chapter is really about what is retrospective. Second chapter is really how you can facilitate your first own retrospective. And there's just a, a template which you can use for that one. And uh, the rest is about facilitation, visual facilitation, system thinking, complexity thinking. I think that's, yeah, interesting. Yeah. Um, the, the meeting itself, the, the event, in, for example, in Scrum, when people go through the retrospectives on a regular basis, it's kind of surprising that... The meeting itself is uh, what I observe very often in my work with teams is either it's poorly done or it's skipped altogether uh, in not so rare occasions. And uh, why do you think that is? Why, why do teams and facilitators have such a hard time with that event? I think the main problem here is that people don't see a purpose in retrospective. So it happens, for example, that you're talking about the same thing again and again and again. It's Mm -hmm. not really changing. And um, this may also be a reason because you're in an environment where change is really hard. And um, when you you maybe worked on all these low-hanging fruits, which are quite easily for you, maybe in your team environment to solve, and then you need to tackle stuff that is around your team, your organization, whatsoever, it gets tougher and harder. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then you can't see these positive effects anymore, not so fast anymore. And I think that's one of the reasons. And the other thing is um, people often forget about the things they decided in perspective. So they have a list of th- things they would like to tackle, mm-hmm. but then they just completely get lost. And then after four weeks or two weeks, whatever your sprint length is, then you find out, oh, yeah, we, yeah, we discussed about that. We, uh, nobody worked on that one. Okay. But even if they worked on something like that and they had these tasks and they did it, nobody is checking if what they did had the desired effect. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. So what I call a hypothesis, you you have usually have some kind of hypothesis if you do something. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important to check if you did something, did it really solve the problem? If not, then please don't start on your on 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 the on the same level on on a just uh, in German would say on mm-hmm. the grünen Wiese. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you translate English. And um, don't start from zero again, but start from where you left the last perspective and find out, okay, we tried something, it didn't work, so what else can we try to solve this problem? And then you get some kind like a, like a purpose where you see, okay, yeah, we are trying to tackle this problem from different directions and really try to solve it. And um, and if you don't do it like that, then it's really, really difficult. Yeah. Or what I also see is something like, uh, I attended retrospective a few years ago, and the first question was, what was really bad the last two weeks? <laughs> if you only talk about bad stuff all of the time and you're always just putting your finger in the wound every time and, and just uh, showing what everything went wrong and so on, I think it's really important also to focus on positive effects. So, of course, your team did also some great things. So, why not just talk about these great things too and maybe talk about how you can improve these things even more? Mm. And uh, I think it's also important to uh, have a little party about things that really rocked and think about how this can be even better maybe in the future and not only talk about all the things that didn't work. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm, I'm curious to hear what you, what you just mentioned about metaphors um, a little bit, how you use them. And if, if you have an example, I mean, I would just imagine any, any team is quite diverse uh, to find a metaphor that works for everyone uh, is probably mm-hmm. quite tricky already at that point. But what what do you do or do you take something very uh, generic some something everybody can relate to so germany it's easy soccer is i think in germany is really usually mm-hmm. nearly everyone knows at least a bit of of soccer mm-hmm. and um but of course you can do stuff like like uh, kitchen retrospectives where it's about okay how does a kitchen look like and how did we cook our last dishes the last sprint mm-hmm. so we are using the metaphor of cooking dishes which is uh, uh, implementing features and just transfer this into the kitchen language for example and so i think that's also working for for a lot of people or what i did uh, is also doing train retrospectives so train rides mm. so you're writing a little uh, diary about your last train ride as a team and just use this metaphor of the train about your trainer, what happened. Yeah? Did everybody reach the, the, the end destination? Who left the train maybe in between? What was added to the train? So you can use these metaphors a lot for talking sometimes about uh, um, difficult problems in your team. Is sometimes difficult if you talk directly about it. Mm-hmm. If you use metaphors, it's sometimes easier to talk about this elephant in the room. Yeah. So that's why I like these metaphors because it's easier for some people to really talk about maybe things that are usually not so easy to talk about. Mm-hmm. Well, you just said something about the, the elephant in the room, right? It's you're, you're actually implying that people are sitting actually in a room. Um, how like lots of retrospective difficulties come from distributed teams. Um, yeah. And uh, other challenges when teams or programs are distributed, like mm-hmm. multiple teams, uh, scaling comes into the mix, right? How do you do retrospectives? So what kind of recommendations do you have for listeners here around retrospectives in, in distributed teams, but as well as, you know, if it's very large um, project teams of several teams maybe working together, like in a scaled approach, mm-hmm. um, how can they um, incorporate some of these techniques? So for for just purely distributed teams, uh, what I like to use is a tool called uh, Retrium. 
R-E-T-R-I-U-M.com. So these guys, they build a, a tool for retrospectives, which is quite nice. It's not uh, for free, but I think you can do two or three retrospectives for free, and then you can decide if you want to use it or not. Um, what I like about this tool is that it doesn't matter where you are, everybody's using the same tool. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it's more difficult if you're doing more or less a normal retrospective so with your team, which is local, and you have some some people who are not local, maybe offshore, and they just connect via video conference or telephone conference, because it's really difficult then to incorporate them in the retrospectives. And uh, when you use a common tool for everybody, it's it's a lot easier than to to talk to each other. It's just, everybody's typing the same thing, the same tool. Everybody can see everything. And um, so I re- really re- recommend to use such such tools. I think the Scatterspoke is also one of these tools. So there are now two or three tools out there you can use for for distributed retrospectives, and I highly recommend using them. Mm-hmm. And um, if uh, I think if you have to do it like that, then you should really use a powerful tool from yeah. my point of view. So you would say even if it's a, a team of six and five are in a room and one is just on the phone somewhere else you would still use a tool just to bring that one person into the mix. Yeah, yeah. I would okay. I would highly recommend doing that. Mm-hmm. And um, of course, if you really have a highly distributed uh, team with lots of teams maybe, from my point of view, it makes sense to bring them together maybe at least uh, every quarter of a year, maybe every three months. Uh, bring them in a big room every 50 people and do a big retrospective, maybe half a day. Mm-hmm. And um, and the rest of the, the time, maybe the rest of the retrospective, I would just do locally. Mm-hmm. And only if needed, I would maybe do it on on large scale. But um, I would really try to do retrospectives um, together at least every three months. I know that people have to travel, but from my point of view, the the money you can spare or save by bringing people together from time to time, um, will just um, you will. I know travel costs are sometimes high, but mm-hmm. you, know, you will get get the cost in quite easily. Yeah, benefits yeah. outweigh the the cost. Um, what do you think in general about scaling, Mark? Um, in general about scaling, I think one of the main problems with scaling, especially when we talk about safe, is um, it implies that if you use this, this uh, for example, safe approach, which really looks nice from the outside, and you have this nice picture of all these different roles and process and so on, and People, especially in bigger companies, just tend to look at that and say, ah, that's yeah, already quite close to what we already have. We just need to tweak, tweak this role and this process a bit, and then we are already agile. So it, it's, um, it's just covering the real problems, and you're not, it looks from the outside, it looks agile maybe, but from the inside, it's not agile at all. Mm. And um, from my point of view, you have to do lots of homework first before even thinking about scaling. Like simple things like, having cross-functional teams. So what's the point of scaling if you still have functional uh, containers like there are the testers in one building, then we have the front-end developer somewhere, we have the back-end developer somewhere maybe, and then we have maybe some guys for responsible for, for all the DevOps stuff, and then they're not really working together as a team, but distributed in different functional teams. And um, I think one of the key elements for being able to be agile is having cross-functional teams mm-hmm. and it's really interesting to, to see in a, a lot of bigger companies um, or companies that are that are growing that there is still this this belief that if we start to grow we have to put people in containers and put a team lead on them and uh, mm-hmm. yeah it's really from my point of view ridiculous ridiculous because it doesn't help 
anything, any, anybody, especially not in these fast times and complex times we have nowadays. And, um, and the yeah. next thing, which is quite important for me, which is always missing, I have a big list, but just yeah. to pick two, <laughs> just to pick two, the second thing I think that is always missing is courage. Yeah. And you, you know that courage is made one of the scrum values. And I think this is the, one of the number one things missing in lots of agile teams because Agile, the only thing Agile does, it's like your bad mother-in-law. It's just pointing at all the things that do not work. Mm. Agile do not, does not solve any problems. So um, the, the thing is, you have to solve these problems. Mm. You have to do it. You have to tackle these things. You have to, to try things differently. And for that, you need courage. Mm-hmm. But if you are in an environment, maybe we are not allowed to experiment. We are not allowed to make mistakes. We are not allowed to... Um, to not be part of the process or not working like the process is telling you how to work. And it's really difficult to be courageous and to tackle things. Mm. And then all the agile doesn't make sense for me because then it's just, uh, uh, yeah, it's just. Yeah. I think we're coming full circle here, right? To the beginning of our conversation where we talked about passionate teams. Yes. Right. So how could I expect them passionate teams uh, emerge out of an environment like this? Really difficult, yes. Very difficult. Hey, Mark, we're going to go through the rest of your list at a different podcast at some later point in time and talk a little bit more about scaling. I do want to thank you for uh, sharing some of your thoughts around passion. You do a passion analysis on your website. It is at marklöffler.eu. Um, and um, the book, just one more time, it's the improvingagileretrospectives.com for all the listeners who want to pick up a, a copy of that book and improve the way of how they do retrospectives. I want to just uh, thank you here at the end of our podcast for uh, taking your time. Yeah, I thank you. It was, was a blast. Uh, thanks for having me. It was really fun talking to you. And maybe we'll see us in some of the next conferences soon. Absolutely. Looking forward to it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Agile FM, the radio for the Agile community. I'm your host, Joe Krebs. If you're interested in more programming and additional podcasts, please go to www.agile.fm. Talk to you soon.